We still have Champions League and the Europa League to come. And Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score a number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by uh, Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi Joe. Alex Stewart. Good morning. And the fantastic George Ellick. Wow, uh, thank you. Hi Joe. Hello George, how are you? Yeah, I'm very good. I'm very happy to be called Fantastic early in the morning so thank you well you you are fantastic all throughout the day uh george (laughs) is of course uh is a championship expert and we're going to be talking about west brom today later on uh, but we're also going to hear his input on uh, southampton and manchester united which are the other two teams that comprise this sensible transfers episode um but before we get started let me remind you that uh, you can get 40 percent off a uh, subscription to the athletic by visiting theathletic.com forward slash tifo transfers uh, and there you will find a sensible transfers editorial piece for uh, every premier league team some in scotland and some in the championship too uh, and of course all of the other wonderful work that the athletic uh, journalists do on a daily basis um but without further ado let's get started with today's episode man united southampton west brom it's sensible transfers <laughs> Okay, uh, let us begin with Manchester United. And of course, first on the docket for today um, is, of course, a centre-back partner for, for Harry Maguire. Uh, now, I think we have released a Manchester United video uh, that will accompany this podcast. So we've gone into much more depth about some of the other positions in the video. For the purposes of today's podcast, we're going to speak mainly about the centre-back position. It was important before the semi-final against Sevilla, but I think it's clearly part of the public football consciousness now as a result of how one or two of those goals were conceded. So this, of course, isn't a a complete solution, um, but we're choosing to look at this part of the team in depth because, obviously, it appears to be the area of most weakness currently. Alex, I'm going to come to you first and just can you explain to me what you think is wrong with Victor Lindelof? Because I noticed towards the end of the season, there are actually numerous games where he seemed to be the stronger of of, of the two centre-backs. Yeah, Lindelof is not a bad player. Um, I think there, there are a couple of things to say, first of all, which is that if you look at Manchester United defensively, it, it is worth noting that they had a very strong defensive performance in the Premier League and they, they conceded, I think, the third fewest goals. But it's slightly weird watching them trying to work out how that happened because they seem to spend an awful lot of time in retreat. They're not particularly capable at dealing with balls over the top into the channels. Lindelof is persistently kind of scurrying backwards and then bouncing from one side to the other as he tries to sort of square his man up. 
You He's think everyone's very... scurrying. You're always saying scurrying. <laughs> what what is it like? But let's just dig down into that for a second. Okay. What do you mean specifically by scurrying? Because I feel like it's a word that we hear from you often. Okay, so I, I think they they quite often, by virtue of the fact that Maguire likes to bring the ball forwards uh, and then United sometimes lose it in transition, or they have a very high defensive line that teams try and play over, they are very often moving backwards at pace with a slightly panicked air. That's what I right. mean by scurrying. Okay, nice. Um, Lindelof is the kind of player who, I mean, he's got good pace, he's got relatively good judgment, uh, he never really, to my eye, and I spent about 45 minutes this morning just watching clips of him, and he doesn't look assured, I think is the way of saying it. Now, there is a kind of bias here of, uh, you know, certain types of defenders a are able to to convey presence and to look like it's all a bit effortless, and those are the really best ones. Lindelof is definitely not in that bracket. But he kind of almost goes the other way. Everything seems a little bit too energised, a little bit too uh, like he's panicking almost, uh, which is probably not what's happening. But there's something about the way he moves that I think makes him seem not as good as he is. That's really interesting because I was watching, uh, I watched the Sevilla game, the semi-final of the Europa League, uh, with specific interest in Wambasaka. I mean, I've seen Wambasaka play now many times, of course, as we all have. But there's something when you watch his running style and the like, he looks, I don't think panicked is the right word. And I, and I also agree, I don't think that's actually what's happening. But there's something about the way that he throws himself into challenges. There's something about the way that he shapes up. It, it, his posture is unusual for a, a fullback and, and it, it conveys right. something which I don't think is actually happening. I wonder if, yeah, if, if perhaps that's the same with Lindelof. Well, I think it's the same with all of them. If, if you look at the first choice Man United back four with Wambasaka, Lindelof, Maguire and Shaw, all of them move in a slightly odd way. Uh, and I don't, again, this is... That's right, this is Shaw the, has his chest out as he's running. Right, and, and sort of looks a bit thigh and a bit kind of, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> Misfits. Maguire, Maguire, obviously, I mean... You know, Maguire has been the subject of a very unfair internet meme, um, which I, I'm in no way approving of um, because it shows that people don't understand defenders. That's fine. Um, but he does move in an odd way and he has a big head. Um, He'd do better if he took the cape off, wouldn't he? I think that's... <laughs> uh, and, and, and Lindelof's got this incredibly kind of frenetic movement and when when he's adjusting his his run he's sort of shifting which shoulder is is moving first and he's constantly kind of adjusting his position and and it it does all look like none of them are necessarily that natural physically yeah it's actually been pretty effective right i mean like the defense together well, that's have, the point um, yeah i mean they had, had a very good season generally they are obviously individual errors and some of them are, are highlighted as they were in the severe game but generally speaking defensively uh, a very good performance from the team i agree and and i think one of the reasons that these individual errors do get highlighted yes sometimes lundelof will will misjudge well, quite often it looks like he misjudges headers and climbs over the back of his man and so on but I think a lot of the problem that United have is because they're such a proactive side, they try and keep this high line, they try and bring Maguire into into the midfield line as a ball carrier, it means they're very often defending going backwards, and defending going backwards at pace, and if you watch the most recent games against people like Sevilla, or against Leicester, or against West Ham, or Southampton, 
teams clearly know this now that 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 the team will try and that United will try and get high and that they're vulnerable to balls in behind and that's one of the reasons why they look like they're always running backwards and individual errors are highlighted but as an overall team performance they're clearly not defending that badly Seb can I ask you as well um, because you've watched this team a little bit Lindelof to to me in some ways looks like the more vocal of the two centre-backs I mean I know Harry Maguire is considered the leader he's obviously the captain uh, and and is, is probably the better of the two defenders but Lindelof is the one that you see talking to the goalkeeper talking to the players ahead of him and to the fullbacks do, do you think that's fair yeah I wouldn't disagree with that Joe although I, I think it's kind of a prerequisite for any centre-half for any goalkeeper for any fullback communication is the kind of is is very much the currency of any defensive unit so the, war- the more worrying uh, detail would be if, if you didn't notice that. I think I also agree with Alex. I think that of the players in that department, Lindelof is the more frenetic. He is the one you notice because he is, I think he, he's just a little less smooth as a player. I don't mean that in a Miami Vice kind of way. I just, in a, in a purely finesse sense. So you, you kind of, you notice the kind of the jerky elements of his game, the shouting, the the, the body language, obviously coming off the back of that severe game, his little confrontation with Bruno Fernandes uh, was captured by quite a few cameras. And that's one of the things you associate with him. I, I, I don't know whether it's, it's almost, sometimes it can come across as a little bit of an overcompensation. I don't know whether that's fair or not, but it just seems as if it's a, it's a substitute for composure. I don't know, maybe, that, that, maybe I'm doing a terrible disservice there, but that's just uh, the impression I'm left with. I think the issue they have is that they quite often defensively can't be that composed when they're in transition because of the way that they set themselves up to be played in behind. So everything seems like it's a reaction. They're not they're not kind of smoothly controlling an area of the pitch. And so they probably aren't as composed as they'd like to be because they're constantly going back and having to adjust and a fullback's running inside and Lindelof's going out wide and Maguire's having to steam across to clear something. It's it's the nature of the defensive system that robs them of composure. Yeah, I'm still reeling at having introduced Miami Vice to this podcast. Joe, please, dear God, move <laughs> us on. <laughs> before we get to the picks, I want to bring George in as well because, George, you mentioned before we started recording that you spent yesterday arguing on Twitter about Manchester United. Would you like to uh, regale us with the details of the argument yeah i thought i was over this but maybe not i I just i'm not a huge fan of the manager um i think that in solskjaer you've got a manager who is doing a a lot of good things in terms of of building a squad that is young and kind of pumping the manchester united back into manchester united but i still feel like they go into most matches in the premier league and in europe already behind in terms of the tacticians in the dugout and my kind of concern is that there is an unwillingness from Manchester United fans to acknowledge this and the answer seems to be to consistently bring in new players. It's always bringing in new players. After the Sevilla game, it wasn't Solskjaer's fault that he didn't make a substitution until the 87th minute. It was the club's fault for not having better better substitutes bench, even if Dan James was brought, brought in just last summer in order to be that backup, even if you know Jesse Lingard two years ago was an England international. It's, it, it just strikes me as being a bit short-sighted. Um, not to say that it isn't necessarily the case, but we're talking again about another rebuilding job at Manchester United, whereas actually I think a lot of the shortcomings... A lot of the reasons why maybe, you know, the defence, despite keeping a lot of clean sheets this season, often will give away goals such as that second severe goal, which is just a poor defensive line and poor defensive organisation, maybe comes down to the person who's 
training them and setting them up that way. Even looking at the recruitment in the last year or so, Bruno Fernandes is quite clearly a fantastic signing and a brilliant player who has had a revolutionary impact on this team. But you brought in Bruno, which means that you, you have to play 4-2-3-1 now. He, he can only play as a 10. And then you've got Paul Pogba, whose best football all of, all of his career has been on the left-hand side of a mid, midfield three playing 4-3-3. So now you're stuck in a position where you have to play Pogba in that sitting too, which means that you've got Fred and Matic playing there. Matic and Pogba, I think, lack the legs needed to be an effective two in the system, you know, the high uh, the high line system that that uh, Solskjaer wants to play. Similarly, you've got Aroman Bissaka, who is a fantastic one-on-one defender and again a very good signing for a certain type of team but if you want to play with a high line he's somebody who isn't going to offer the attacking threat from fullback that most top teams have around Europe so it poses a threat for that reason I, I you know looking at United's form this season you look at the two City games despite the fact that Solskjaer wants to play a certain way wants to play on the front foot often their best games this season have been when they've sat deep and they played on the break because they've got the likes of Rashford and Greenwood and Martial, whose pace is devastating when they can break past that line. So clearly there has to be changes made, but that was the the, the long version of my tweet yesterday, which seemed to um, maybe calling Manchester United fans culty uh, for supporting <laughs> Solskjaer wasn't the best idea at uh, 10.30 on a Monday morning after they'd been knocked out of Europe. I agree with many of the points that you make, but I don't agree with the, the overall one. I have to say, I, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right in that Solskjaer is, is quite clearly at the moment, you know, not displaying the same kind of tactical acumen that other, you know, the coaches that would be considered some of the best coaches in the world that might be considered for a position such as the manager of Manchester United might display. However, there are many significant improvements and I think you can point to a, a, a large number of positives from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer being there. The main one for me is the prolificness of Rashford and Martial, which just wasn't happening before. I mean, like Martial, Rashford, to a certain extent, he had bursts of um, he had bursts of form and scored goals in bundles. Martial has been inconsistent throughout his entire Manchester United career and has scored, I think, 23 goals for the club this season. It's his highest ever count. That's a huge improvement, which I think is fair to say is directly attributable both to Solskjaer and to the way that they're deciding to play. I agree with you that there are misfits within the squad. However, I would also say that prior to Solskjaer being on board, Manchester United's recruitment was a mess. And now that he is, it isn't. It might be a different kind of mess, i.e. maybe the wrong types of players bought, but they've all worked out fairly well. With the exception of Dan James, who I think was bought as, you know, as a prospect rather than necessarily a direct backup or someone who was going to start in the team. Uh, I think he just had that, that, that sort of favourable run at the beginning, didn't he? But... Every player that's been brought in has had a significant impact. The most recent player that has been brought in is Bruno Fernandes, who's arguably the signing of the season. Manchester United finished third. Like They're not Man City and he's not Pep Guardiola, but I don't know that the expectation should be for him to be that. And I feel like it's... You mentioned a rebuilding job. If there is one, it's the same one that it's been for a while. And I think that the club are far further along the line uh, of doing that than they were at the beginning. I agree with that entirely. And I do think there are many positives here. And if his role is to be the man who takes United out of kind of the, the area they're in before with a long-term goal. I, I, my point is more just the maybe passes them on. Well, it's it's just the exactly it's the lack of of willingness to um, acknowledge some um, you know some some lacking in terms of in-game management and in terms of, of maybe tactical acumen. Yeah. Um, you know, if you that there's just an unwillingness to admit that you know, there's very little evidence there that Solskjaer is going to be the 
the next, as you say, Pep or, or, or Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp. And I do think this is oh, yeah, a, a squad full of quality. I had a similar debate on Twitter myself. I said, um, I said that United were essentially quite a boring team with some very good players, which is a, mm. a very kind of gauche and ham-fisted way of saying the same thing. And it's a very compare... controversial... <laughs> you well... said, like, deliberately, what do you call that? Um, uh, you know, poking the bear... Yeah, but but I think I think the issue is that if you if you looked across the course of some of those other games uh, in in Europe, particularly in the Champions League, and obviously we're talking about the Champions League versus the Europa League, but the level of of, of problem solving that you see from from certain other coaches is monumentally more sophisticated than what Solskjaer does. I agree that he's got good performances out of certain players. But I would argue that those players are the sort of players that are encouraged by a degree of freedom and confidence that Martial and Rashford and so on, that they're, they're combining well because they're being given the license to combine well. But it's basically a lot to do with their individual abilities to improvise and to come up with things off the cuff and to work well together. And... It, you know, when you look at the the elements of a team that do require a greater degree of structure, particularly defensive positioning and pressing and transition from attack to defence, United don't look up to par. And I think that is the fault of the coach. I think it depends on what your your approach to football is. I'll be honest. I think I, I can I can I can hear the the way that you interact with football in in what you're saying, which would make complete sense. But I I do think you know. I'll compare him to, to Alex Ferguson, for example. Uh, you know, the, the consensus with Ferguson was that he always had a fantastic coach working with him who solved those problems uh, and the big games. You know, Ferguson was, was never... I mean, I'm not saying he didn't understand football or he didn't have a, a grasp of tactics, but he, you know, self-admittedly was was never the person who instituted the, the more minute details of the tactical setups or the systems on the team. He was there... To, to make the pl- players feel good, to do the man management side of it, to to give certain players a license to have an overall philosophy. I think, and I think you know, obviously Solskjaer has been influenced by him more than any other manager. So maybe maybe the issue is with the team as a result, uh, rather than you know just the just the person. All good points though. But let's move on to picks now. Uh, and just to remind you, uh, three years ago when we started this conversation, we were talking about a centre back partner for Harry Maguire. Alex, I'm going to come to you first. Who would you be suggesting? for this role. So it's worth pointing out that Manchester United have now decided to join everybody else in modern football with a, a scouting and analytics department that uses data. They, I think they've advertised for eight people and are in the stage of recruiting and interviewing them. So data-driven picks are clearly important to the club. They've recognised that, like I say, everyone else is doing that. And I don't mean that facetiously. It's just with the huge availability of data now as a means by which you can filter down the vast number of players that are out there, uh, it does make sense to do it. So obviously, at TIFO, we've always kind of gone with, with data-led picks to a degree. The first one is Jordan Turinariga, who's at Hertha Berlin. He defensively shows up very, very well. Almost two interceptions, two and a half blocks and six clearances per 90. His pass completion rate is pretty decent, about 83%. That's particularly on passes over 25 yards. So he's got a kind of a nice directness to his passing there. He's left-footed, which helps because I think... While Harry Maguire has tended to play on the left for United and and also for England, he is right-footed. It, 
aids his ability to bring the ball forwards into the midfield line, which he clearly wants to do if he plays on the right-hand side. So that might be worth considering uh, as a switch. And, you know, he's he's capable in the air, which again, I think is, is something that United are lacking. Another Bundesliga player that I think is really worth looking at is um, Musa Niakate. He's at Mainz, 24 years old, so he's in the sort of good age bracket, well experienced at Bundesliga level. He's the captain of, or has captained Mainz, um, which again shows that kind of leadership quality and communication that Seb was talking about. Six and a half clearances, almost three tackles or interceptions, one per 90. He's also... I think, again, good at the covering in behind. So his body position and awareness is good. If Manchester United are going to persist with this high defensive line, then they need a defender who can cover the ground quickly, but also has the awareness to push across to fill in the space behind the fullbacks, to push across to fill in the space behind Maguire and basically act almost as a kind of sweeper because they're going to have this staggered defensive line when they're in transition because Maguire tends to go further up the pitch. I'm going to channel Manchester United fans now uh, yeah. listening to this and I'm going to ask you why are these two people, uh, maybe they're not, maybe they're, maybe uh, maybe only one of them is, but why would these two players be better than Victor Lindelof? They both have a greater degree of calmness than Lindelof. I think while Lindelof is quite quick, the rest of his athleticism is questionable. He doesn't seem robust enough, particularly in aerial challenges. Um, and I think, again, that, that sense of projecting less freneticness freneticness probably not a word but having just having a greater degree of authority and calm these are both quite young players but the bundesliga is a demanding league in terms of having to deal with counter-attack in terms of having to deal with with attacks that rotate positions an awful lot so it requires of its defenders a great degree of mental agility as well as physical ability uh, and I think both these guys have that. Okay uh, George before we move on I don't know if you had any suggestions not that you need to but if you've been listening and you think hey this person would be good <laughs> now's the time to say. Yeah, I have one. And if I haven't upset Manchester United fans uh, enough already, I'm now going to upset Leeds fans as well, because I think Ben White would be a a brilliant fit uh, at Manchester United. Um, he spent last season on loan at Leeds from Brighton um, as a replacement for Pontus Janssen. And I just surprised everybody by how quickly he took to, to first team football. He'd spent some of the season before on loan at, at Newport County and stepped up at Ellen Rhodes and is every part the the assured centre-back there's nothing particularly haphazard or flailing about his style of play um, he's very very comfortable with the ball at his feet he's decent in the air he carries the ball out of defence in a way that kind of has shades of, of Rio Ferdinand the way that he can kind of gallop through the middle of the park and in keeping with with United's transfer policy seemingly this summer where they're going after Jaden Sancho and, and Jack Grealish I think Ben White fits into that category of of the perceived Manchester United DNA, someone who they can get in at the age of 22 and they can and they can say, right, you're going to be our centre-back for the next 10 years. And he has all the talent to do so. Brighton clearly have an abundance of talented centre-backs, another of whom I'm probably going to talk about when we're speaking about another team in a bit. Um, so whether they'd like to let him go is another question, but they seem to have put a, a price tag on his head for Leeds of about £40 million. And I'm pretty sure that if Leeds do match that, there's going to be a host of sides that that, that come in as well at that price. And United have been linked with him as well. So it would be a pretty controversial move given uh, it'd be one way for Manchester United to welcome Leeds back into the Premier League um, because um, he would not be too welcome back at Ellen Road. But in terms of stylistically and, and the way that Solskjaer is trying to build this Manchester United squad, um, I think it would make a lot of sense. 
Okay, yeah, thanks very much. Uh, right, when we come back, we will be talking about Southampton. Hey, Seb, did you know that Harry's sponsors the TIFO Football Podcast? I do now. And Alex, did you know that as a listener of ours, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. pence. I have a beard, though. Yeah. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and a travel blade cover, simply by going to harrys.com forward slash TIFO right now. That's harrys.com forward slash TIFO. Hey, we're back. Uh, let's get started with Southampton by reminding listeners, of course, uh, Mohamed Salusu joined last week. Uh, he's a centre-half from Valladolid uh, on a four-year contract. £10.9 million, I'm informed by Seb. And also, of course, Carl Walker-Peter signed from Spurs. But we are going to focus our conversation here on uh, a replacement for Hoiberg, who, of course, also left to Spurs. Alex, let's start with you. Can you explain to me what uh, what Hoiberg's role was um, before Hasenhutl? And and how did it change after he arrived? You know, and also as a result of this void now, is um is there a leadership void to be filled? So he came from Bayern Munich, and as everybody who's read anything about Hoiberg recently will know, he was cited in Pep Confidential, which is the the long sort of behind the scenes look of, of, of Pep's first season at Bayern, as the heir apparent to someone like a Sergio Busquets, you know, the ability to break defensive lines with one pass, the ability to read the game, to uh, disrupt opposition attacks, all the rest of it. He was supposed to be the guy. He was 17 at the time that Pep arrived at the club and it didn't seem to work out, possibly because, you know, you do wonder to what degree the the, the pressure both of, of Pep's view of him and also the book coming out maybe sort of distracted him or, or what have you. But he it was something of a surprise when he moved to Southampton, given how he was seen in terms of his potential ability. He, I think, tried to bring that sort of passing initially when he joined, but his ability in reading the game was, in the Premier League context, much more about breaking up opposition play, uh, ball recoveries, winning it back and becoming something of an organiser. He was the club captain under Hasenhutl until he made it very clear that he wanted to leave. Hasenhutl's system is is an odd one in that both the two deeper-lying central midfielders play as kind of six-slash-eights, so there isn't really a distinction between one as a ball winner and one as a more progressive midfielder. They're both expected to do a lot. And in fact, if you lump defensive metrics together and progressive yards per touch gained through passing. James Ward-Prowse and Hoiberg are almost identical in, in those collective metrics. Aurel Romeo is also very, very similar. So they, they clearly do similar kinds of things. I think what Hoiberg did that was a bit different was he was the organiser for a lot of the pressing triggers. He was the person who was looking around, telling other players where to be and kind of structured that counter press that Southampton have been using so effectively in the second half of the season. So there will be a leadership void, I think, in terms of on-pitch organisational structure, particularly with the pressing. Less of a leadership void, I think, in terms of, of the overall leadership of the team. I think Ward-Prowse is there. You've got Jack Stevens, who's been at the club for a long time and 
it'll be interesting to see whether he retains his place now that Salisur has come in. And you've got, you know, Southampton are a team where leadership seems to be by example rather than by people being particularly vocal. So I'm not sure it's going to be a massive issue in that regard. But Southampton do clearly need somebody who can come in and adjust rapidly to the way that Hassan Hootl organises the press and take on some of the responsibility of, of orchestrating that in the central midfield role. Uh, who is that? <laughs> well, they've been linked a lot with uh, with Weston McKenney. I'm not entirely convinced by that. I mean, the, the benefit of someone like McKenney is that he can play in a variety of different positions, which is good. He's an American, right? He's an American. He's currently at Schalke. Um, mm. Schalke have got severe financial difficulties and are basically offering up everybody. He could work well. There's three other options. One I'll touch on briefly is that Harrison Reed is returning. Uh, and I'm sure George can can speak to his season at Fulham uh, more fully than I can. But I think there's Reed showed before Hassan Hootel came in and before Reed left on loan that that he was a very capable midfield in the making and and could well be the one to step in and do that. I also think potentially someone that that Seb mentioned in a previous podcast as a kind of midfielder jack of all trades, but a very smart player is Will Hughes. I'm not sure if he would bring quite enough bite. But actually, in terms of his defensive performance, stats-wise, he is actually exceeding what Hoiberg was able to do, except in ball recoveries. And he is a very smart player, so he would learn the system quickly, I think. The guy who really caught my eye, though, is a chap called Nicola Dominguez, um, who's at Bologna, who's a 22-year-old Argentine midfielder. Spent the first half of the season on loan at Vela Sarsveld under Gabriel Heinzer, who we have also talked about in previous podcasts. Dominguez is a very, very good ball winner, but he's also able to play passes through the lines. He's snappy, he's aggressive. When he came back to Bologna, although he only played 700 minutes because he was coming back off alone, um, his defensive metrics were outstanding. But he also has a greater eye for a pass, I think, than Hoiberg showed. Um, and he's young and he's worked with a coach who had a very complex pressing system so he can clearly apprehend that sort of thing quite quickly. He would probably be expensive. He's valued by transfer market at, at 15 or so million pounds. So he'd cost 45 then? So he'd cost 100 million pounds. Um, That's how well, transfer market works, isn't it? He's already an Argentine international and he also holds EU citizenship with an Italian passport, which I think pushes the value up a little bit too. He looks like the sort of player who would slot in really neatly. My only concern again there is that because of his age, is he necessarily going to have the kind of immediate impact and presence in that midfield that Hoiberg is is leaving with um you know i don't i don't want a midfield that's too young and and too kind of uh, lacks lacks leadership basically lacks organization and confidence so that that may be a question mark around him yeah okay george i hear you have some some ducks lined up in this position let's blow them away now <laughs> um yeah well firstly harrison reed was was the first one i wanted to talk about because there are rumours that he might be leaving um, Southampton for £8 million to go back to Fulham, which I think would be a huge shame because if you're looking for centre midfielders who can both pass and be a physical presence in midfield, then he would be right up there for the for this after the break for Fulham's run of form that led to them getting promoted. Harrison Reid was, was arguably their best player. Um, he was absolutely crucial. A different role, playing as kind of the most withdrawn in a, in a midfield three but um but certainly very good at getting around the the pitch physically 
but in the tackle, maybe lacking a bit of the, the physicality of, of Hoiberg and, and also not necessarily the most progressive passer, although it's, it's worth saying that his role at Fulham wasn't to be that because he had Tom Kearney playing uh, just on the left-hand side of him and that was his role. So maybe we, that was purely because it wasn't the role he was chosen to play. But I'd be really surprised given that Hoiberg's left if, if Reed wasn't given another chance at Southampton because he's certainly proven himself as being at a better level than the Championship. And so if we're looking for Championship players to come and slot in, you've got the ready-made one right there. But but maybe a better stylistic fit, although he is very young, would be Max Bird at Derby. Uh, he's just 19. He's part of this Derby youth group who who beat um, the under-19s, beat Dortmund 3-1 back in, back in February, which shows you how strong they are. Um, and Louis Sibley is, is certainly the star, uh, aged 18, who scored five goals in nine games towards the back end of the season, including a hat-trick. Um, they've also got uh, yeah, Ben Bird is a is a key one, but Jason Knight's another one. Lee Buchanan, uh, Morgan Whitaker, all these guys playing first team football, um, being brought through by Philippe Koku, and it's really exciting what they're doing. And you know, Alex mentioned Will Hughes as a, as of course a, a Derby grad, but in Bird, you've got a player who who is very very similar to to, to Hoiberg in terms of of being a very capable progressive passer. Uh, being very good at getting around the pitch, being that physical presence as well. And, and, and if you look at the role he had to play for the second half of the season, he was effectively Wayne Rooney's two legs as well as being his own. He was playing alongside Rooney, having to cover so much ground, playing almost that exact same kind of 6-8 role. And it helps as well that he's he's left-footed. So providing that balance alongside Ward-Prowse, I think in that midfield too, would, would give them... You know, I think with uh, Hassan Hootel's play very well and, and Koku's Derby play this high-pressing continental style, um, very similar to, to what Southampton adopt as well. And mm. he was voted the, the Derby Players Player of the Season. Um, I think Sibley is the key one that they're going to want to keep. And you know, the nature of this Derby side will be to, to trade players. And whilst they'd be keen to keep Bird for another season, it wouldn't be a massive surprise to see him go for the right price. Obviously, there are concerns with him being 19 but Southampton are another club who who look to recruit wisely and he has a, a really high ceiling and, and could be sold on for a, for a fair profit um, down the line that's been the case with Hoiberg so he'd be my one that would be the best fit long term whether he could come in and, and perform having only played 25 odd games I'm not necessarily sure Max Bird you say Max Bird yeah remember the name any relation to uh, <laughs> to Larry Bird or not just in that I, I'm not going to say mm. no no, but, let's not yeah. say no. Let's but, just leave that open as a possibility. So. Yeah, exactly. No, sure. I want to go to Seb so we can talk a little bit more about Southampton. Because Seb, I, I, I hear that you want to talk about loan clutter. I feel that's overstating it a little bit, Joe. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading your notes. About... Yeah, but it, it doesn't say that. It, it's not in big, bold capitals. It's the text You've isn't written flashing. It in, in Helvetica font size twenty six, <laughs> red bold. No, you haven't. I'm, 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 I'm fussing here. But there, there are some loan situations at Southampton, aren't there, that we need to discuss? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, obviously, there's a, these are a legacy of um, the recruiting problems that the club ran into under Les Reed. Uh, one of them has been almost solved. Uh, Mohamed El Yunusi has extended his loan at Celtic, which is good news. But the club is still left with uh, a few white elephants in this squad. Guido Carrillo, obviously. The chances of him going back to Leganes after, his, after their relegation are pretty remote. Wesley Hoot, who... Yeah, they spent fifteen million pounds on. He's he spent the, uh, the the latter half of the season at Royal Antwerp in Belgian football. George mentioned Harrison Reed. He looks like he's off. The other one that a lot of people have already forgotten about is Mario Lamina, 
uh, who's been on loan at Galatasaray, but, you know, big wages there. Good player, but just obviously not suited to what Hasnahutl wants to do. And finally, Fraser Forster, his situation with Celtic, obviously he was on loan up in Scotland. His situation is a little less clear. There doesn't seem to be any progress between the two clubs. But if you were able to shift all of these players, and you're not going to get fees back for them really, um, or substantial fees, but if um, if they could um, alleviate some of the pressure on the wage bill, then recruiting all of a sudden would become a lot, lot easier. Okay, thanks, Seb. Um, I believe we have one more pick from George as well. Just one I thought that wasn't a centre midfielder was just a left-footed centre-back, given the way that Saints like to, to play out from the back. And I think Southampton fans probably wouldn't like the idea of signing a, a Brighton centre-back who's surplus to requirements. But um, so many there are so many <laughs> elite Brighton centre-backs coming through that that is the case here. And, and it's Matt Clark, who was Max Bird's teammate at Derby last season, um, having joined the club from Portsmouth. And he is a left-footed, ball-playing centre-back who is destined for you know, to be to be an established Premier League player very soon. It's just the competition for places he's going to have at Brighton, which could stop that. He doesn't necessarily look like your um, normal ball-playing centre-back. He's, a, you know, he's a big guy and he gets stuck in and he's dominant in the air, but he has a, a lovely left peg and is somebody who, again, at the age of 23, um, is developing very quickly. And sometime, has, we've seen in the past, Hassan Hootel switch to a back three, where he'd be very adept at playing um, that on the left-hand side there too. So he'd be another one who could be going... Maybe not on the cheap, but then, in, as we know, Brighton have to sell um, in, in that position because they've got about seven who'll be expecting to play first team football next season, and he could be, and he could be a good one. That's too many centre backs, isn't it, George? Given they've got Dan Byrne at six for eight playing left back, I think that shows you how many um, how many centre backs <laughs> they've got in their in their squad. Yeah, lovely. Okay, well, listen, that was Southampton. Thanks everyone for your input. When we come back, uh, we are going to discuss West Bromwich Albion. Hey Alex, did you know that this podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming? I'll be honest, no. Not not until you just hit me with that. Seb, did you know that Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family aduels? Precision is important in that area. It very I'll much is. It yes. very much is. And I'm, I'm excited today, gang, because Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job over here. So you could be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. And that's life-changing in a good way, gang. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. And the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. I'm a multitasker, so I like to do everything at once. Uh, and we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off! And free shipping right now by using the code EPL20, that's EPL20, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving, gang. Okay, George, let's uh, let's start with some housekeeping. I love watching West Brom last season, but they arrived back in the Premier League with a few question marks. First of all, uh, what is the situation with Matisse Pereira? He signed yesterday. So that is that is sorted, um, which is big, big news because this felt like a West Brom side who are very much built on, on loan signings. It was Pereira, Kravinovic and um, Callum Robinson towards the end of the season and Grady Diangana as well. So basically a whole attacking fluid lineup built on loans was a bit of a, a nervy way to come into the Premier League. But uh, Matthias Pereira was the, the pick of the bunch, arguably the player of the season. Um, in the championship last season. He's just a, a fantastic footballer playing off the left-hand side or or through as a number 10. Creative with an eye for goal and 
it's it's pretty clear to say that no matter which sensible transfers I can suggest for West Bromwich Albion today, the most important one was made yesterday. And do we have any any progress between West Ham, West Brom with Dean Garner? Because you mentioned him and he, I mean, he looks like a sensational player at championship level and someone that can really make an impact in the Premier League of the next couple of years. Is he likely to come back to West Brom? I don't know if he's likely to come back. I, I think it's quite clear. And, you know, um, Tom Colomossi wrote a piece in the, in, in the Mail I think yesterday, saying that Dan Garner has told West Ham that he wants first team assurances. And if he doesn't get that, then he'll want to move on. Um, I, I personally think that West Ham would be crazy to, to not assure him that he will get his chance. But we've seen West Ham make some pretty questionable decisions when it comes to uh, <laughs> right. to, to player development in the past. So nothing would be a huge surprise. Um, but again, unlike the Pereira deal where, where you know, the, the deal, the agreement of a transfer was already set when the loan agreement was made, that isn't the case with Diangana. So it's not going to be a first refusal um, option here for, for, for West Brom. If Diangana is able to leave, he's going to have, um, I'm sure he'll have his choice of clubs towards the bottom end of the of the Premier League. Yeah, the one thing probably to mention there as well is, is the, the size of the queue at West Ham for his position. There's an awful lot of money being mm. spent in that area of the pitch. George, can we get a, um, a sense for the recruiting structure at West Brom? Um, just because this was something that didn't work particularly well last time um, they are in the Premier League. So who's actually making these decisions over the summer? It's it's not necessarily clear. I mean, Bilic certainly has a... Um, we spoke to West Brom fan midway through last season who compared him his kind of overreaching influence of the club to, to that of Jurgen Klopp's, which seems to be taking it quite far, especially when actually Liverpool have a have a have a big recruitment department themselves. But but we've seen with Bilic in the past that he is a manager who insists that his sides sign players who are, for want of a better word, ballers. I mean he consistently at West Ham would bring in players such as Arnautovic, Lanzini, Chicharito, Ayu, I mean all these players who are effectively flair players playing in the final third, not even necessarily out-and-out strikers. And then we saw it again last season. If you look at um, the, the West Brom side that lost in the in the playoff semi-final to Aston Villa and compare that to the um, Slaven Bidic side, all the players he brought in, Pereira, Diangana, Kravinovic, Robinson, even Romain Sawyers, who is the metronomic centre midfielder. Brought he's in a lovely player, Sawyers, isn't he? I, I'm surprised he's never had a go at the Premier League before. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. He's the kind of player that I, I'd, I'd like to be myself if I could, if I could be one. Just, <laughs> just get, just get the ball and give it, um, and and don't really worry about anything else. But that, that's an area I think where this whole West Brom side was very much built upon having a lot of the ball in the final third. Um, whether that was the midfield two of Livermore and Sawyers, Livermore being the one who'd break up play, who'd give it to Sawyers, who then recycle it into the flair players in the final third, and. An issue that West Brom are going to have here is having to accept that in the Premier League that isn't going to be the case. Um, they aren't going to dominate possession in lots of games. They had two flying fullbacks for plenty of last season as well, which probably isn't a very good idea coming up. And we've seen a few sides in recent times try and stick to their kind of attacking philosophy coming up and have been caught short, no, none more so than Norwich last season. So how Bilic goes about this recruitment, if he sticks to his guns and continues to effectively look to the continent to find players who are young and are raw but have bags of talent, we will see because it feels like maybe they need a little bit more know-how. Although they do have, you know, 
up front, their, their striking options are Charlie Austin, Harry Robson Carnu, and Kenneth Zahor. So there's not much um, youthful exuberance in, in that three. Yeah, we, we talked yesterday about the likely positions they're going to want to strengthen. Let's start with forward because Harry Robson Carnu uh, has a value at, in the top flight. I accept that. Charlie Austin probably does as well, even though he's now 31. What would you want to look for um, in a third forward? or a fourth forward with Zahore? Because Zahore, when he was at Cardiff in the Premier League, wasn't that convincing. I think this is where you have to look for that for that youth and that talent and that spark and somebody with a high ceiling and a high sell-on value. And I'm going all the way down to League One here, um, if you okay. can believe it, to Ivan Tony, who is at Peterborough. And sometimes we have players coming through League One who are just just way too good for the division. Uh, we've seen it with, with Ricky Lambert. We saw it with Grant Holt. But these strikers who just quite clearly head and shoulders above and, and Tony um, won the golden boot very, very comfortably was top scorer in the league. And um, this was only his, his first season playing consecutive seasons at the same club since he was at Northampton as a teenager because he got a big move to Newcastle. But the next season, Newcastle were relegated to the championship and brought in Rafa Benitez. And, and unsurprisingly, Benitez wasn't particularly interested in turning to a raw 19-year-old striker from Northampton in order to lead his push back into the Premier League. And a host of loans followed, which were fairly hit and miss at, at Wigan and at Scunthorpe and at Barnsley. He was always a, a wiry striker, could score goals, but often could kind of go missing. But in the last couple of years at Peterborough, he's transformed himself into the you know, the complete striker. He is uh, very good with the ball uh, in the air, very good with the ball at his feet, adept at running the channels as well. And and over the past year or so at Posh, he's had different players playing around him because at the beginning of the season, he had Marcus Madison um, and, and Mo Issa and the three of them looked like they were going to score 100 goals between them. And then during the season, Issa and Madison fell out of favour. Madison left the club for Hull and Sir Ricky Dembele and Sammy Smodix came in and again both of their games were up so quickly and if you're looking at the way that Bilic likes to play with this collection of of, of well, a wide men and or inside forwards really and uh, and a 10 in behind Tony's already proven that he's not only a striker who can score goals but he's also one who can bring others into play really effectively and you know his his talent is not for is not for debate he's being linked to, to Rangers and Celtic and, and and Brentford for a 10 million pound fee um, which for a league one player is obviously pretty toppy but I have no doubt in my mind, anybody who's seen him knows that this is a guy who, who is a pre- who's Premier League quality playing in League One. And he would fit very much the system that they play whilst also providing something a little bit different to the strikers they've already got. We're recording this on a Tuesday morning. Um, there is a chance Ivan Tony will be a Brentford player by the time this comes out. So do go easy on George. Um, if that's the case <laughs> uh, where else are we looking to strengthen though where, which other parts of the pitch we need to look at uh, centre back probably as well um, they have Semi Ajayi who came in from um, Rotherham in the summer uh, and is a very very talented player and somebody who I think surprised a lot of West Brom fans when he came in but the other options are Ahmed Hagazi and um, Carl Bartley and whilst they might be decent pros I think they're the kind of player that you need to upgrade on uh, when we are looking at um, moving up into the into the Premier League and Shane Duffy has been linked and that probably is a very sensible transfer another Brighton centre-back they seem to pop up everywhere and it would seem to make sense but I wonder that because we have Bartley and Hagazi, the two older pros if again this is an opportunity to look for somebody with a very high ceiling and, and Joe Rodon is a centre-back a 22-year-old centre-back at Swansea Oh, we know Joe Rodan. <laughs> He's come up quite a few times. 
I'm sure. I mean, it's it's one of the uh, most baffling things covering the EFL the whole time. How Swansea have managed to keep hold of Joe Rogan yeah, because um, he is um, he's six foot four. He's you know he's dominant in every sense. Um, he's he's brilliant on the ball, and again, is somebody who clubs like this because there seems to be a reticence taking Dan James out of the equation. There seems to be a reticence for for top top clubs to take a chance on championship players. They, they, they're happy to spend the extra 20, 30 million on a player after they've seen him develop. And that gives gives these clubs a massive opportunity because the sale value isn't that high. If a Premier League club comes in for Joe Rodon, he's quite clearly going to want to move and, and take that move, which, may, which means any bartering over price becomes much simpler for the for the buying team. And um, yeah, he fits the... I mean, my only concern would be that a Rodon, a Jai centre-back duo going into a Premier League season lacks the experience that you maybe need. But in terms of a, of a centre-back quartet with Hagazi and um, and Bartley, um, I think they'd be getting... You know, they'd have two players there on the way up and two who can do a job um, with a bit of know-how as well. So he'd be my selection my selection there. Robert Dickey's another player from League One who plays at Oxford, who's being linked to QPR and to Newcastle at the moment. Um, and would be another one who, again, is destined for, for better things. He's not going to get a move right to the top at the moment. He has a progressive passing ability from centre-back. We don't often see very often where he's he's almost a play, playmaker in League One playing on the halfway line, but maybe lacks a little bit of pace with balls over the top. There are some real talents down in, in the Championship and in League One at centre-back, and, and those are the two that would maybe fit in for West Brom. OK, I've also got a central midfielder on my list. Are we looking to um, just to provide backup to Jake Livermore and Romain Sawyers, or are you, are you trying to add in a, a true competitor there? I think somebody who can add a bit more dynamism Somebody who, because as I as I mentioned, where West Bromwich Albion are going to have the ball for the majority of this season is very different. Where Livermore was breaking up play, rather than being on the halfway line, it's likely going to be 10, 15 yards within their own half. And therefore, you need somebody who's able to kind of break fast and carry the ball out of out of midfield. And Conor Gallagher was a player who um, really impressed last season, firstly on loan from Chelsea at Charlton, um, scoring plenty of goals, playing a basically that exact role um, for a side who don't have much possession grabbing the ball driving at goal and and being a creative spark in the final third um, he then went to Swansea in January um, which Charlton fans were not too happy about Chelsea recalled him then sent him back out to Swansea playing in a more possession heavy system and whilst he was still very good he didn't have the same impact um, purely because the you know he didn't have that space to run into he didn't have that space to to exploit when going forward and you know he's not going to get into the Chelsea first team um, n- n- this coming season, despite Lampard's uh, willingness to play youth. But I think he is ready for a a Premier League loan, and in in a kind of stylistic way, and offering West Brom something that they don't necessarily have already. Just even off the bench as an option, just to to provide almost just to instigate some chaos in midfield to enable them to to break out of of games where they're having to to play a little bit deeper. Um, they don't have that player at the moment. They've lost someone. Uh, in Kravinovic, who, who possibly could have done it, although more advanced. Um, I'm, I'm sure he will go out on loan again, uh, and I think he'd be a, a good fit here. Okay, a little bit of bonus content, because we've got you on the pod. Um, unsensible <laughs> transfers. You're an Oxford United fan, aren't you, George? Yes. Yeah. Okay, right. Well, um, one, of, one of the strangest moments of last season uh, was Oxford's decision to sell Shandon Baptiste and Tarek Fosu to, to Brentford. Um, this will be the Oxford that uh, lost in the 
League One playoff final to Wickham. Talk yes. me through the thinking behind that deal. That just doesn't make uh, sense. I, I, I grew up watching Oxford on um, uh, on the Manor Ground, at the Manor Ground even, um, one of the most rickety old stadiums you'll ever come <laughs> across. So for, it's gone now, but um, please do Google it if, you, um, if you're not aware. But what, what was the club's thinking there? Because, I mean... Uh, I, 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 it's hypothetical of course but that seems to have cost them promotion I wrote a piece actually for The Athletic at the time on this so anybody who's listening can can uh, if they want to check it out further can go and look for it but it's um... theathletic.com forward slash TFO transfers 40% <laughs> off thanks George and uh, <laughs> I, I mean I, I think that what, what a lot of fans would say would have said at the time was that um, was that it was a bad decision however we do now in hindsight live in a new footballing time a new footballing currency and the decision to sell them I think um, certainly the board and, and the, those who hold the purse strings at the club would, would say was, was was good business because there's no way we've got the fees that we got then um, I think there's an issue as well with, with Shandon Baptiste who I absolutely adore as a footballer and I, and I hope he comes through at, at, at Brentford next season uh, was that he was meant to move to Brentford the year before and ironically um, suffered a very serious injury at Griffin Park in a cup game just before he was meant to go. So I think there was an agreement there with between Brentford and the club and Baptiste that once he had returned to full fitness, uh, they would sell him on. And it actually worked out very well for Oxford because he not only improved after his injury, but he also scored a quite high profile kind of wonder goal against West Ham in a 4-0 win. And Oxford actually ended up getting, I think, over double what they were going to get if they sold him the year before. In the case with Fosu, it was pretty gutting to see him go, but he had a he had a minimum fee release clause and it was activated and he was only there for six for for six months. So it it was tough, but our form after they left wasn't too bad. Um, so I'm I'm sticking up a little bit for the board here because um, I think their hands may have been tied. Um, and and that's that is the the ethos of the club is to recruit well and to sell on and then reinvest. And, and you can't ask for much more than that as a fan. See, there you go. A bit of bonus Ox United content. And do do look up the uh, the Manor Ground because it had um it, it had the probably the silliest slope I've ever seen on a professional football <laughs> ground. It was like um you know those you know those really famous pictures of streets in San Francisco? It's like that, basically. It was just yeah. sort of they would they would come down a hill in the second half and they'd always, 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 always score. Good days. Anyway, Joe, <laughs> I can't part, close off these also pods. Because of Joey Beecham, I think, as well. The slope and Joey were the two reasons we'd score, I think. That was the... Honestly, Joey Beecham should have played for England. We have a video about him. We do indeed. We do indeed. I wrote that one. Anyway, Joe, you, I can't close off these uh, these podcasts. I just sort of stumble around. Teach you into... I'd like just to what learn you, What you bit. do, Seb, is you yeah. say, George Alec, thanks so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. What a fantastic guest you always are. I would love to have you back in the future. That's very nice. And then Thank George says... Much. I'd love to Thank be back. Thank you very much. That's Whenever what he said. This... Perfect. perfect. <laughs> uh, also, I would encourage uh, listeners to obviously go and listen to Not The Top 20 podcast. Also, Going Up and Going Down, which you guys record uh, with, well, you record with Ali Maxwell for The Athletic. You guys appear regularly on Sky Football too, so get on the telly and look at those people's <laughs> hey, faces. It's, and it's a great podcast, mouths. that one as well. Do, do listen to that. It's, uh, it's essential for Football League fans. Absolutely. Uh, Seb, thanks to you. Thank you very much, Joe. Yeah, God, I feel this isn't a good ending either. And Alex, thanks to you. Thanks, Joe. Back later in the week with another thing that's something else. Goodbye. Goodbye.